0: Bibles to the book of Bilemon, please. You haven't been with us for the last several weeks. We we have now for over two years been studying the book of Colossians. We are in chapter 4 in that study, and as part of that study, Paul, uh, when he's concluding his letter sending greetings from some of the men who are helping him in the ministry. Paul is actually a prisoner, a house prisoner in in Rome. And in chapter 4, he mentions several of the men who are there who have different different parts of the ministry that they're helping with. And one of the men that he mentions is a young man named Onesimus. We learn a little bit about Onesimus from what Paul says about him in Colossians chapter 4. We learn that he's trustworthy, he's faithful, is the word Paul uses, with the idea of being trustworthy. Apparently, this young man has a particular ministry to the apostle himself, uh, caring for him, taking care of his daily necessities. Paul is not able to go out and and uh, the markets and get food for himself, those kind of things. He has someone do that. Apparently, Onesimus was one of the men that helped in that way. We find out that he was uh, a special, uh, beloved friend of the Apostle Paul. Uh, under Paul's ministry, Onesimus came to know Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, and, and Paul helped train him him to grow in his walk with the Lord, and so he he refers to him uh, as a son in the faith like he does Timothy. Um, and so this young man uh, is one of Paul's uh, converts, and Paul, Paul uh, greatly appreciates this young man and his ministry. But then we find out that he's from the city of Colossae, and that really is the, the basis upon where we start his story. Uh, we learn more about him in this letter to a man named Philemon. Philemon is also from the city of Colossae. We find out uh, in, the, in verse number two that the church in Colossae, um, in other words, the letter Paul writes called Colossians, is being sent to this church. The church meets in Philemon's house. And, and Philemon was apparently a wealthy man, to have a, have a home large enough to have that kind of a gathering meet on a regular basis. Uh, Roman society, and of course Coloss- the city of Colossae and that surrounding area would have been under the, the authority of the Roman government, um, the institution of slavery was just common. Uh, it, as a matter of fact... Uh, the slave population had grown to the point that that there were times that the Roman government was greatly concerned about uprisings, and, and that had happened earlier on in their history. You might remember the name Spartacus. Uh, that was not just Kurt Douglas. That was actually a, a real slave, a Roman slave named Spartacus, who led uh, an uprising among Roman <laughs> slaves, and so. There was was concern at times about those kinds of things happening, and so so in Roman society, uh, slaves were, in some cases, not treated very well. In other cases, they were respected members of society. Uh, Slaves held many different positions. Some were teachers, some were actually family doctors, Uh, and some were taken in by the family where they worked, the family that they served and treated as a family member. And, and that apparently is the case with Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus being the, the young slave who worked in the house of Philemon and his family. We don't know how it all happened. Paul doesn't feel in all the details for us, but Onesimus broke the trust of Philemon, apparently, uh, or indications are that he stole something from their home and escaped to the city of Rome. While in Rome, uh, God ordained events in such a way that Paul met Onesimus. Onesimus somehow met up with the Apostle Paul. He knew, I'm sure, who Paul was because Philemon would have talked about him, Philemon being one of Paul's converts as well. And so when he meets the Apostle Paul, he eventually becomes a child of God. And, and through the course of Paul's training on Isimus, hears the story about what had happened back in the city of Colossae. And now he's writing this book of Philemon to say to this man, I want you to take Onesimus back. In other words, I want you to forgive him. Philemon has been legitimately sinned against. He's been betrayed. He's been wronged by this young man. And now Paul says to Philemon, I know he's done you wrong. I know whatever's taken from you, I'll pay back, but I want you to take him back Not just as a worker, but as a brother in Christ. I want you to forgive him. And that's what this little letter is all about. Learning how to forgive. The process involved in forgiving someone else for the wrongs that they commit against us. And so in the last several weeks in beginning to work our way through this book of Philemon, really we've been preaching point number one and the subpoints under that. Point number one is the precaution concerning forgiveness. What happens when we are unwilling to forgive? Well, we've already discussed the fact that if we're unwilling to forgive, that, that unforgiveness breeds Bitterness an unforgiving spirit will produce a resentful, bitter spirit. Unforgiveness being that seed that Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 talks about, from which the root of bitterness grows out of our lives. And so if there is someone that you harbor resentment toward that person, you are unwilling to forgive them, when you think about that person, you immediately think about how they wronged you, how they betrayed you, then then you need to be willing to forgive. And no excuses for not being willing to do that. I understand some of us have been deeply hurt, we have been deeply wronged, we have been legitimately sinned against and in in. in very hurtful and harmful ways. We've been betrayed, lied about, lied to. We, we, we've been forgotten. Whatever the case may be, that that, that uh, where you were wrong, you still, according to Ephesians chapter 4, ought to be willing to put away from you all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. Be kind one to another, and then be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And God is always willing to forgive. And we should be too. But another thing that happens is an unforgiving spirit also opens the door to the devil's attack in other areas of our life. we become an open target to him. Remember what we said when Paul was writing to the Ephesians? Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Paul indicates that, that if we let a, a day go by and we're still harboring bitterness, we're literally opening the door to the devil's attack in our life. And, and And in other words, an unforgiving spirit, and we see this again in Hebrews chapter 12 with bitterness, It affects you, and it affects those around you. It affects you spiritually. It's going to affect other areas in your life. But it not only opens the devil's attack to us individually, according to what we see when Paul wrote to the Corinthians church the second time, encouraging them to restore fellowship to a, a young man who, who had gone through church discipline and had repented and and made things right with God and with the church, Paul says, take him back. Forgive him. And would you forgive him? I've forgiven him. Because if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to forgive, Paul says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. In other words, it's, it's possible for an individual's resentment and bitterness and unforgiving spirit to open the doors of the church to the devil's attack. So, we want to move on this morning. I just want to remind you of how we started. We started this message by considering or just mentioning a few of the 75 word pictures we have in our Bibles concerning forgiveness. Someone has gone through and found at least 75 different illustrations for what forgiving someone looks like. Let me just remind you, we talked about five of them. And the reason that I'm reminding you is this. Because what we're looking at this morning is so, so sobering that this is what we must be willing to do. We must be willing to have the kind of spirit these word pictures illustrate for us. First of all, to forgive is to write in large letters across a debt. Nothing owed. Remember what Jesus taught when he gave his model prayer, when, when, when the apostles came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray? Notice they didn't say teach us how to pray. They had already been taught that in Jewish schools and those kind of things. They didn't taught how to pray. He said they say to him, teach us to pray. And so the Lord Jesus then explains to them, gives them kind of an outline, if you will, a model to follow when they pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The idea there, Jesus is saying, is when we sin, we owe God something. And when someone sins against us, they owe us something. What is it we owe God? What is it they owe us? Repentance. Confession. If we, at times, when we, I should say, when we, at times, need to go to someone else to confess our sin against them, we must have the same spirit of repentance and remorse that we have when we approach God. Now, we're, obviously we're talking two different levels of uh, being there, but we have to have the same, we should have the same kind of spirit. But sins are referred to as debts because something is owed someone when they are wrong. But the idea of the spirit of forgiveness is we take the debt, by the way, let me say this, even if they never ask for it, we must be willing to write over their debt nothing owed. My parents were divorced when I was seven. There are not good memories of of my childhood. Um, I remember one time, when I was 10, my father had joined the army. He was, he was stationed in Korea. We had not seen him or heard from him in a couple of years. And out of the blue, he calls one day. And he wants to talk to all four of us kids. And I was a ticking time bomb as a 10-year-old. Literally. Very angry as a child. When my father called, I exploded. And I, quote unquote, told him what I thought about him. I, I was mad. I was angry. I remember I was just, I was shaking and crying and just telling him how wrong he was and and how he had hurt our mom and how he had hurt us kids. And, and I remember just, just unloading on him. Several years went by after that. Several. And out of the blue, once again, my father called. And God had I had no... I didn't know where he was. I had no way of communicating with him. But I... I, when I wanted God to use me, reached the point in my life, I surrendered myself to the Lord's service, wanted God to use me. He called one day and one of the first things I said to him was, will you please forgive me? Do you remember as, when you called from Korea, do you remember that conversation, Chris? He said, yeah, I do. And I said, will you please forgive me for that? Now what I was hoping, And I, I, I I was genuinely repentant. I believe, but what I was hoping he would say is, "Yes, but will you also forgive me?" And he didn't do that. What I said to him on the phone as a ten-year-old boy was true, but I shouldn't said it the way I did. I shouldn't said it. Period. After my family and I started in the ministry of evangelism, we were in a particular church, and I remember it was just one of the hardest. Weeks of meetings because of opposition and and different things. It was just a very discouraging week.
1: We were in Northern Virginia, and I don't know how he
0: got in touch with me, but he did. Figured out where we were, and he called. And when he and I were carrying on our conversation, he said, Carrie, will you forgive me? And I was able to say to him, "I already have." I was able to, in essence, say, "Nothing owed." Now, is there somebody like that in your life that you're you're literally waiting for them to come begging for forgiveness? That's no spirit of Christ likeness. That's resentment. Nothing. (coughs) Code. Another word picture. To forgive is to pound the gavel in the courtroom and declare not guilty. You realize in our court system, when a person is declared not guilty, they can never be retried for the same crime. It's called double jeopardy. It's as if that never happened. If they are acquitted, they are declared not guilty. When a person wrongs us, do we hang this over their head, constantly remind them, constantly remind ourselves of how they wronged us? Making sure, and and maybe we even Maybe we even justify it this way. We want them to know how guilty they should be. Boy, I'm glad God doesn't do that. I am so glad when we go to God, when we came as hell-bound, hell-deserving, lost sinners and confessed our sin and, and repented and turned to Christ, he from that point puts our sin as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't hang it over our heads to keep us feeling guilty. We have no right to do that. Because as badly as some of us have been hurt, we have never treated someone else, or let me rephrase that, someone has never treated us as wrongfully as we treat Jesus. We put him on over the cross. That's never happened to any of us. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be found again. now, when, when God forgives our sin, again the Bible pictures what happens several ways. He puts it as far as east as from the. By, by the way, the east the, that distance can never be measured. You can measure north to south because there is a a, a stopping point. But if you uh, start walking from east to west, you'll you'll keep going there's no end it's infinite and that's the idea behind God's willingness to forgive it's infinite the Bible tells us he hides our sin behind a dark cloud the idea of the word dark there is fading in other words God lets our sin fade into the past now question does God forget our sin no now wait a minute God doesn't forget anything. When the Bible says he puts it as far as the east is from the west, he hides it behind an archive. The Bible says he buries it in the depths. of sea. What does it mean when those, the Bible uses those kind of things? It means this, God never brings it up again. One of the things that sometimes we as children of God in our own guilt and shame will do for when we confess our sin, is we feel like we have to earn or work to be forgiven. We'll confess the sin and and, and and we really are genuinely repentant. And and we're not committing that sin anymore, but we feel like we have to keep confessing and keep confessing and keep confessing the same sin over and over and over again. You know what? God shot that arrow so high and so far, he's not going to bring it up again. There's an old song, old gospel song, what sin are you talking about? The idea of that song is we go and we confess and we keep confessing, and it's as if God says, child, what sin are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. Not that he has forgotten, but he's not going to bring it up. And that's what we have to do, folks. We can't really forget the past. I wish we could. I wish people could forget the past that I was involved in in some things and how I wronged people. We can't really forget, but we can live with such grace that we don't bring those things up. And when we remember them, we, on purpose, remember that we've written on that death, nothing owed. We've declared them not guilty. We shot that arrow so high and so far. We're not going to bring it up again. It's not going to be found. To forgive is to grant full pardon to a condemned criminal. And then finally... To forgive, and I like this one, to forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be put together again. Have you done that with the wrongs you suffered? Or are you here today with an unforgiving spirit? If you're not willing to forgive... It's going to result in bitterness. If you're not willing to forgive, it opens the door in your life to Satan's attack. Thirdly, if you're not willing to forgive, then God will not forgive you. Listen carefully. If you are unwilling to forgive someone who has sinned against you, when you sin against God, he will not forgive you. He said, I thought he was always willing to forgive. He is. He is. But if we're unforgiving, we're not right with him. How do we know God will not forgive? We've already mentioned to you our Lord's model prayer." In explaining that prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, their sins, that's what we're talking about, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So does that really mean... If I'm unwilling to forgive someone, God will not forgive me. Is that really what that means? Or is there some deeper hidden meaning here? That's really what this means, folks. That's really what he is saying. If we are unwilling to forgive, he will not forgive our sins until we are willing to forgive those who trespass trespassed against us. Now let's talk about that for a little bit. We've already dealt with the the idea of bitterness, but let me just remind you a couple of things there. It is impossible, impossible, for a believer who is harboring resentment, who is unwilling to forgive, to enjoy God's presence. As a matter of fact, you are not enjoying God's fellowship. Now, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned and disobeyed God, was God there? Did he see what happened? Yes. But, there is an aspect in that story where the Bible tells us that God came down and it's as if He couldn't find Adam and Eve. Now, did God know where Adam and Eve were? Sure. Did God know what Adam and Eve had done? Yes. But what God is saying to Adam and Eve when it comes down, Adam, where are you? What's God saying? God is saying, you are not now in my presence. I see you. I know what you've done, but you can no longer enjoy my fellowship. Listen, in in, in studying and meditating for this message, a thought struck me probably more poignantly than it ever has, and, and, and probably I'm just behind the times on this. You probably thought of this many times. But living as a child of God, living outside of regular fellowship with God, is not normal for the child of God. Should not be. Living outside of fellowship with God is not normal for the child of God. Now, why do I say that? Take your Bibles back to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. I want you to look at verse number 27. This is our Lord speaking of himself as our shepherd. We as the sheep, we who are part of the family of God. Verse 27 says, my sheep hear my voice. And what does it say? And they follow me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, folks, this is one of the clearest scriptures in all the Bible concerning assurance of salvation. If we claim to be a child of God and yet we live our life outside of following, outside of fellowshipping with Christ, we better examine ourselves whether we're really in the faith or not. Because Jesus makes very clear, my sheep here. Now what is he saying there? They're going to listen to me. They're going to take what I say and they're going to do that. They're going to take the commands that I give and obey them. They are going to follow the direction that I lead them in their life. We who are the children of God will hear. We won't debate this book. We will obey this book. We We won't try to figure out how we can make this book make this book fit our life, we will make our life fit this book. We will hear what he says and we will do what he says. And so if you are here and you are on a regular basis living a life outside of fellowshipping with God, outside of following the scriptures... Are you really one of His? Are you really a part of His flock? Folks, I'm I'm trying to be as direct as I can because this literally scares me that there are people, maybe even in this room, who, who claim to be a child of God. You, you, you can even remember quote unquote praying a prayer. You can remember responding an in invitation. You filled out a, a card saying, I trusted Christ, whatever the case may be, and yet daily you aren't following the scriptures. You aren't following Christ. Are you really his? Jesus says, if you live outside of following me, live outside of fellowshipping with me, you're not one of mine. You're not one of mine. And so if you are harboring bitterness, if you are unwilling to forgive, God will not forgive you until you are willing to forgive others. Now I understand, please understand something. Can children of God harbor bitterness and resentment? Yes. We can. But please understand this as well. When we do, we are forfeiting the peace of God, the presence of God, the joy that only God can bring. We are forfeiting those things, are giving up those things. Why would we do that? Why would we live outside of the presence of God? I want you to go somewhere else with me there in the book of, God, uh, of John, here in the book of John. Go over just to chapter 15. I want to show you something else that we miss when we are outside of fellowship, when we're not living with our sins forgiven as God's children. John 15, this is the passage of Scripture speaking of our Lord as the vine, we are the branches. Verse number 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. Not only, folks... If we who genuinely are saved are not right with God, do we forfeit God's blessing, joy, peace, presence, fellowship? We also, we forfeit fruitfulness. Our life will not produce Christ-likeness. We will not be able to help others grow towards Christ's likeness. We will not be fruitful in sharing the gospel. Our life will be like a dried up fruit on the vine. It does nothing. As a matter of fact, again, I I, I want to be very careful. I do believe that people who are genuinely saved can live outside fellowship with God. But they will be under conviction. They will know they're not right. And they will know that they should be right. And they will have desire eventually to get right. But look at what Jesus says about a person who doesn't abide in the vine. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit without me you can do nothing. Verse 6 If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Stir warning again from our Lord about some who say I'm a part of the vine and yet We're not abiding in him. We're not producing fruit. There's a couple of ways you can apply this. One is that a person who is genuinely grafted into the vine, a true child of God, who is not producing fruit, is no more help to the kingdom of God than is a person who is on their way to hell. They might as well be thrown in the fire because they're not doing anything for God. Do you want to live like that as a child of God? Do you want one day when you stand at the judgment seat for Jesus to say something like this to you? You know what? Your life was basically Worthless. You never accomplished anything. Oh yes, I love you and I saved you. I died for you and you trusted me as your Savior but you didn't do anything for me. I'm going to let you into heaven but you basically wasted your life. Wow. Another way to consider this is that this person is only a part of the vine because they were created by them. The vine you're a branch by creation, but not by salvation. This person's never truly loved Jesus. Again, let me be clear. We, as children of God, can sin against God. We can live outside of fellowship. We'll know when we're not right. We'll know when we need to get right. We should want to get right. But if you're here today, please listen to me. If you're here today, you have no desire to be right with God, no desire to fellowship with God, no desire to grow for reading scripture, no desire to do what is right. If you have no desire for God in your life, you don't know God. those of us who are children of God. Is there nothing between your soul and the Savior? Are you here today knowing that there is a person you're unwilling to forgive for whatever reason? God will not forgive you until you're willing to forgive them. And the fact is, folks, we all need God desperately. Some of us like to use God as a spare tire. We'll put him on when we need him. But we try to live our life without him. I was working when I was a student at Bob Jones University. I I was what they called a hall leader. In other words, I had a had a hall, the men that I was responsible for uh, taking care of, as far as uh, helping to make sure they clean their room and do those kind of the hall monitors, if you might be a way to put. It. I tried to help my guys more than just by giving out the merits or trying to look for things that they were doing wrong. I, I tried to help them and encourage them to do right. I would meet with them if they were willing to do so, and then we, we, we would. Bible studies together and, 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 and we would pray together. And One of the things that I really was striving for is that none of my guys would break rules to the point that they would have to be expelled from school. And I made it almost all year, finally one young man. This young man was from Israel. He was caught off campus, live, committing sin, and because of that he had to. Had to be expelled. I remember sitting in the dean of men's office with this young man, and he was not repentant. He 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 was making excuses. He he would not admit that he had sinned, and we knew he you know we knew he had, and he had said that, but he was not really willing to to ask forgiveness. And I remember Tony Miller, his pastor in Greenville, now saying to this young man, "Son, right now you are." Rebelling against God. You are unwilling to confess your sin to God right now. So what are you going to do one of these days if this continues? And if this spirit continues and you continue to rebel, this? what are you going to do one of these days when you have a family? And that little baby of yours is deathly sick. And you need God. What are you going to do? We don't use God as a spare tire, folks. We shouldn't. What are you going to do when you need God if you're not willing to get right with him today? I'll get right with him then. Will you really? Will you? Or will you just go through the motions because you realize you do? This is out of your hands. at the beginning. We are never more like Christ than when we are willing to forgive. Let's switch that around. We are never less like Christ than when we are unwilling to forgive. If we are not willing to forgive, we are Anything but Christ-like. Story is told of King Louis the Twelfth before, or when he became king, after he became king. Uh, at the hands of one of his own family members, a cousin, uh, Charles VIII, he he was slandered by this man, he was betrayed by this man, he actually was thrown into prison, Uh, he was kept in chains, he was under, under constant fear of his death. Charles, let me back up, this was before Louis became king, this was when Charles was the king when Louis was to succeed or finally did succeed Charles to the throne. His close friends and his his advisors advised him to seek revenge on his cousin. But King Louis would not do that. These advisors one day found Louis writing up lists and And on this list were a list of names of people that helped Charles, people that uh, uh, helped carry out Charles' plans against the king now, and and he would write their names, and and out beside their names he would draw a red cross. He would write another name, and then he'd draw a red cross. He'd write another name, and then a red cross, And, and the advisors Assumed that that meant the cross being a sign of death. That meant that those men were going to die. And so one after the other of these men would come to the king, and they would they would plead forgiveness. Some of them actually tried to leave France before they were caught. And each time one of these men would come to him, and each time one was brought to him, he would say to them, you have no reason to fear. The cross beside your name is not a sign of punishment. It's a sign of forgiveness. write down the list of names of those people you're unwilling to forgive. I've decided to put a cross. And then do this. At the bottom of that list, write your name. And put a cross beside yours. Because as a child of God, you have been forgiven. But until you're willing to do so with everybody else on that list, <clears throat> your name should stay there. Because if we aren't willing to forgive, God is not willing to forgive us. He won't. But that can change. Today. Would you bow your heads, please? close your eyes.